God? I thought you were just. How could this have happened? I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? I thought God was supposed to reward good people and punish bad people. God, if you're good, why am I suffering like this? Well, good morning. I trust it's well with your soul. That's, that's a great banner song for, for this study in Job. So because of the aggressiveness of going through 42 chapters, uh, I hope that, number one, you'll get a hold of one of these cards and that before you come on Saturday night or Sunday, you will read the passage during the week. I've, I've put it together so there's six days of reading. So this next week, it'll be about 20, 25 verses a day. And you have six days so that you don't, if you miss one, <clears throat> you can make it up. But I hope that you'll do that. And as you're doing that, that you're praying and just asking the Holy Spirit to minister to you personally through just reading God's word and him speaking to you. The other thing, if you haven't been to the other studies, because we don't have the time to con- continue to review, I hope that you'll go online and listen to them. Because just the, the whole series on when good people suffer uh, into eight parts. So I hope that maybe you'll do that uh, and then you can be with us as we're going through this thing. So uh, let me pray, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to minister again in this area of suffering. And Lord, we just want to really honor you in our hearts and minds with the faith in you and trusting you for all the things that are going on in our lives. And we would pray also for anyone that's here today and doesn't know you, the only true God. We ask in Jesus' name that by your Holy Spirit, your love and your care and what you've accomplished and done for each and every one of us in this room and those who don't know you, we pray, Lord, they'd come to know you even this morning. And so, Lord, here we are. We commit this to you, the things that I prepared. Break them fresh. Give us hearts to hear, ears to hear, and, Lord, that we would move out in obedience to what we hear today. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Job has got a prologue, it's got a dialogue, it's got monologues, and then it's got an epilogue. So the, di- the, the prologue, the beginning of this drama, is chapters 1 and 2. And that gives us the divine perspective in this whole area of suffering. So Job, when life goes bad, we looked at the problem in the prologue. It was an introduction to Job's suffering and invitation for our suffering. So the book of Job is just a big invitation to us. And it's an invitation to trust God's wisdom when we suffer, that God knows what he's doing. Would you say amen to that? We know that God knows what he's doing. He's accomplishing things in our lives that would never be accomplished outside of us surrendering our lives to him to allow him to do what he allows to happen in our lives. So the foremost question in suffering is why? Why me? Why is this happening? The book of Job does not give us an answer. Human wisdom cannot do that either. We can't come, we can't come to a meaningful analysis because God's ways are not our ways. So when we, we try to answer the question why, Job doesn't do that. And so it, it leads us to the question of what do I do when I'm suffering? What does that look like when I'm suffering, when I'm going through difficult times? And then that would be as a, as a child of God, but also it speaks to you who do not know him yet. This invitation to trust God's wisdom for the unbeliever is to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God in his wisdom has provided through the cross for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. I'll talk about that in another moment. 
Now, in the second part of this, which is where we were last week, this week, and next week, are these dialogues and debates that give us the human perspective. And it's most of the book. So it's given us the human perspective. The monologues then that follow that, there are three, exalt God. It's all about God. And it's, he is the sovereign creator. He's the sustainer of all things. And he is not Job's enemy, but an all-powerful advocate and friend. And so it's powerful stuff that we get there. And then the final chapter, 42, is the epilogue that reveals God embracing a broken, suffering human being with his goodness and his wisdom. So Jesus is the point of all the Bible. Jesus is the point of everything that God does. So Jesus is, is divine perspective. Jesus is human perspective. Jesus is God exalted. And Jesus is God revealed. So we're going to be pointing to Jesus throughout this whole thing. He is the great mediator and our great advocate that we have. Now, many of you have heard, know about Helen Keller, or at least you've heard her name. When she was 19 months old, she came across some disease at that time, a long time ago, that left her blind and deaf at 19 months. They didn't know what it was. Since then, they're, they're figuring what it might have been. She said this, quote, Although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of overcoming it. And that just reminds me again of what Jesus said. He said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. What? I have overcome the world. He will lead us to victory in overcoming all the enemies that have come against us, be that ourselves or from the devil or the world itself. So in these three dialogues, these debates of human perspective, Job's three friends not only hold stubbornly to their theology, or at least their dogmatic theology, their insistence that Job is suffering because of his sin. And they get more and more frustrated because all the way along, Job will not agree with them. And so as that's happening, they're insisting that he's a sinner. They're then accusing him of being a sinner. We get the three rounds three debates. So round one, ding, <laughs> suggesting that there may be sin in his life. Round two, today, 15 to 21, they're insinuating there must be sin in his life. And then round three, ding, <laughs> in chapters 23 to 27, they're accusing him of sin that is in his life. So from the very beginning of round one to the very end, bitter end of round number three, Job insists that whatever is happening to him is not because he deserved it. It's, and that eventually he's, God would vindicate him. And what he's hoping is that God will vindicate him while he's still alive. And that's what we'll get, we're going to see in this. So I want to give you a little poem, if I might. Here it is. So three rounds. So round and round and round they go. Would they ever stop? Job sure hopes so. That's the banner for, for this whole, for these dialogues. So all the way along there, and well, we'll get that. I'll, 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 we'll get that in a moment. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar keep telling Job how wrong, wrong, wrong he must be and how right, right, right they always are. They accuse him of being a windbag, a hypocrite, a wicked person, foolish, 
hard-hearted, and many such things. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, let's look just a little bit at, these, at some of the things that well, these three said. So we'll start in chapter 15 with Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? You, yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Verse 6, your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. So Eliphaz, like all the others, in fact, this is directed plurally to them all, he goes on and on and on about the same old, same old, same old. Job, you lack wisdom. You won't listen to us. You are irreverent and unrepentant, and God will judge. Look at chapter 18. We get Bildad, the Shuite, answered and said, Job 18, verse 2, how long do you put an end, end to words? When are you going to stop chattering? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. So Bildad goes on and on and on about the same old, same old, same old. Job, you lack understanding and you won't listen to us. Then we get in chapter 20, this guy Zophar. He's Zophar the Nemethite. He answered and said, verse 2 of chapter 20, therefore my anxious thoughts Make me answer because of the turmoil within me. He's getting frustrated. I've got to tell you what I think. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. So Zophar, like the rest of them, goes on and on and on about the same old, same old, same old. Job, this is the way it always is when it comes to God's justice. The wicked are always punished and the righteous are always rewarded. Job responds, we'll get some of his responses, with reasoned arguments and specific contrasts to prove that what they were saying about what the way it always is was clearly not the way it really was. You're saying this about the wicked, but hold on a second. So when it came to God's justice and his ways with the wicked, what they were so dogmatic about did not line up with reality. So I'll just give you, here's some of the contrast. Chapter 20 is Zophar, 21 is Job. Zophar said, the wicked triumph only a short time. Job said, no, the wicked continue on. That's 21, verse 7. In 27, Zophar says, the wicked perish like dung. Job responds in 21, 7, the wicked live. Zophar says, the wicked are forgotten in death. Job says, no, hold on a second. The wicked are given an honorable burial. Zophar says, the wicked have children who must beg from the poor. That's judgment. Job says, no, the wicked have happy, very happy children. Zophar says, the wicked suffer God's fierce wrath. Job says, no, the wicked know nothing of God's rod of judgment. You might read Psalm 73 when you get home. Zophar said, the wicked have their sins revealed Job says, no, the wicked get away with sinful defiance 
of God. Chapter 21, verse 14, yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? So these are the contrasts that are coming up as far as God's justice. How does God do this? Job responded not only in contrasting and saying, no, hold on a second. What you're saying is not reality. But Job also responded by pleading with them to have a little empathy. Like give them a break. To show them some kindness and understanding. To how about cutting me a little slack. Now, I ta- like I shared in the beginning, I taught Job several years ago. Hadn't, you know, I read it in my daily reading every year. But when I came to begin, so I, I really hadn't remembered how brutal these guys are. I mean, they are brutal when they're dealing with Job, trying to get him to agree with what they're saying about what's going on and why he's suffering. So let's look at Job's response. He's saying, hey, listen with your heart, not your ears. He's saying, show me a little sympathy, please. Just would you, would you lighten up? So let's look at Job, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Here it is. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's place. In other words, if you were going through this, you'd have a different perspective. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you, but I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Now, then he says, verse 6, though I speak, my grief is not relieved, and if I remain silent, how am I eased? He has to talk. He needs, he needs, a, he needs to be able to talk about it. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Now, he's, he's, he says, you have shriveled me up, and is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath, speaking of God, and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Verse 10, I believe, is very prophetic of Christ. So that's verse six, chapter 16. Now let's go to verse seven, uh, chapter 17. He continues, verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does my eye dwell? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? It's like all around. He can't get his eye. That's all he's seeing and hearing. Verse 6. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. Again, prophetic of Christ. This is, he's saying, he, God, has made a byword. So he goes on, verse 7, my eye also has grown dim because of sorrow, so much weeping and pain and agony, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Go to verse, chapter 19, just to get a feel for Job. Now, this one, I'm going to read the whole chapter. So, so let's go through it. Here's Job. He answered and said, how long will you torment my soul? And break me in pieces with words. These ten times you've reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. It's my problem. It's my pain. It's my agony. If indeed you exalt yourself against me and plead my disgrace against me. Know then that God has wronged me. 
and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He also kindles, has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He has removed my brothers from, far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise, and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Verse 21 now. He's appealing. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? So he's appealing to them. Does anyone care? Now, when you're all alone, Job at this point is feeling more isolated, more attacked, and very alone. So his friends, family, children, acquaintances, even God himself he feels are against him. Like Jacob, in thinking as he's at the thought of losing another son, he'd already lost two, he said, all things are against me. Now, with Jacob, as with Job, little did Jacob know that right around the corner, he was going to see Joseph, whom he thought had been dead for years. Right around the corner for Job, there's coming a time when he's going to meet God in a way he never fathomed he could. And right around the corner for us, we've already seen it. Jesus died on the cross and rose from, again from the dead. And he is our hope that one day we will see him alive, risen, and exalted. And so as we look at this thing, this whole area of when you're all alone, F. Scott Fitzgerald said this, quote, The loneliest moment in someone's life is when they are watching their whole world fall apart and all they can do is stare blankly, unquote. I say welcome to Job's world. That's what we're seeing. Loneliness is not something God intended for his creation. Loneliness is the first thing God called not good. Not good for man to be alone. In this sinful, fallen world, we all experience different degrees of loneliness. And that's just a part of the sinful, fallen world. We can be in a stadium of 60,000 people and feel all alone. We are all so much together, but we're all dying at times of loneliness. So let me begin where I must begin in this whole area of, of when you're all alone. There is a loneliness that no human relationship, no amount of success, degrees, jobs, 
hobbies or pets will ever fill. That is the loneliness for God. The loneliness of the soul to know God. You see, God created you to know him. He created me to know him. Without him, the emptiness for him cannot be exchanged for any other person or any other thing. Only God can fill that loneliness. When sin came into the world, it ruined everything that God originally intended. So instead of walking in the cool of the garden in fellowship with God in perfect harmony, Adam and Eve found themselves hiding from God in their guilt. Instead of blessing, there came cursing. Instead of knowing and enjoying only good, now knowing good and evil and no turning back from that. Instead of glorious, a glorious garden with access to the tree of life, now there's a guarded garden prohibiting man from access to the tree of life. But that was done by God in his mercy so that we would not take of the tree of life and live in our sin forever. Jesus became the tree of life, if you will, on the cross for us. And so Jesus came to reverse all that sin had completely destroyed. And that must begin with knowing and walking with God. Knowing him, blessed and secure in his love, not only now, but forever through Christ. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven on that night he was betrayed and was going to the cross and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's going to the cross where he will take care and make sure that that work is completed so that we could experience eternal life. On the same night that Jesus prayed those words, he was betrayed, arrested, bound, mercilessly and hideously beaten and executed on a Roman cross. Jesus suffered alone. The only one who could bear the wrath of God against sin. He suffered alone, taking the just penalty for our sin upon himself. He died alone as the only one who could pay the price of your redemption and my redemption. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from our former manner of life. God could create all the gold and all the silver he ever wants. He could turn the whole Andromeda galaxy into gold. Be gold and it would be gold. That cannot pay the price necessary to forgive us of our sins and atone for them. It took the, spe- the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish, poured out, and there God in his justice, in his grace, and in his mercy offers to us the river of living water through walking and knowing him. And it's interesting, on that night when he was betrayed, he said to his disciples, do you, be, do you now believe? He said, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone, but I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
You see, when we look at the cross and you reach John's 13 through 17 and you look and realize that there's this Trinity thing which we talked about a few weeks ago. The Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That love of their relationship together in God's great plan. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit worked out the plan for our redemption, our salvation by the Son coming and becoming human and bearing on him all of our sins. That was the love of God. And you look at John 13 through 70, Jesus' last hours with his disciples, it's all about the love of God as we would experience it as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always experienced it. The eternal love of God. So as we look at these dialogues and debates, last week, three things in the human perspective Last week, it's the pain. We talked about pain, if you will, management. So we talked about commit, complain, and contend. Pain management. Next week, we're going to look at when life's not fair. And we're going to look at the providence of God and how that works. In between the pain, pain management, and the providence of God, Today we have when you're all alone, and here's the deal, it's prayer. It's prayer. The human perspective needs prayer. And prayer is what brings together the divine retribution, the pain, pain management, and brings together the providence of God. It's in prayer that we're with God that we begin to be able to understand, at least as best we can, we can trust God's wisdom in the pain and in his providence. It's in prayer. And then, so the first thing we need to talk about when you're all alone is this. You're never all alone. You're never all alone. God is always there. One of my favorite passages, we memorized this several years ago as a church, Psalm 139. It's a fantastic psalm about God's omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. He knows all things. He's all-powerful, and he's everywhere present. And so the psalmist begins by saying, oh, Lord, you search me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say surely the the darkness shall... Yes, good job. If I say surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you, for you formed me in my mother's womb. You put me together, you knit me together, and it's just so intimate. God is always there. God can't go anywhere. He's everywhere. So as we talk about when you're all alone, know this, you are never all alone. God is always there. God is a prayer away. And to know him, that first prayer, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, God raised him, you will be saved. 
That first prayer that brings you into fellowship with God is the prayer of repentance from sin and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you offered that prayer to God? If you haven't, I'm going to give you an opportunity when we're done to do just that. To confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So there are four things I want to share with you just briefly on prayer this morning. These are nothing new to any of us. But I want to re-up it for you because it's central to having a good human perspective with the pain and the providence of God. First of all, prayer is powerful. It's powerful. The word prayer shows up in my New King James Version nine times in the book of Job, three times in this debate. The first one we find in chapter 15, Eliphaz says, verse 4, Yes, Job, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. What he's saying, he's accusing you of, is that you cast off all reverence for God. That you say prayer doesn't matter and prayer doesn't work. That you are praying and what you're saying is God's not answering. So, Job, you're not, you're not revering God, which is far from the truth. If anyone was a man of prayer, it was Job. Job feared God. He loved God. But he was in pain and suffering and agony. So what they're saying is not true about Job and prayer. He knew that prayer is, prayer matters. Remember in chapter one, he prayed for his children, offered sacrifices. You see, prayer does matter. And when you pray, God is pleased and God hears. Prayer does work. Prayer does make a difference. Prayer is the deciding factor that gives us perspective that we need. And so I'm going to re-up for each one of us today. How is your prayer life? We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But know this. Prayer is simply conversation with God. That's why the Bible says pray without ceasing. So when you're riding your bicycle, you don't want to close your eyes because you have to close your eyes to pray. You keep your eyes open when you're driving, but you can talk to God. We can talk to God at any time. And conversations with God are just like human conversations. Sometimes it's just relaxed, it's enjoyable. Other times it's pretty intense. Sometimes it's desperate. That's conversation. I love in our, to, to just help people in a corporate prayer setting. When we're all in a circle and we're going to pray together. Because a lot of people don't know what that's like. It's actually fearful for them. Maybe that's you. Well, I like to start any new prayer meeting or any prayer circle and say, listen, we, we got together. We're starting at eight. We're just chatting for a little bit before we go into it. Everyone's talking. I said, all a prayer meeting is is we're going to bring God into the conversation. So as, we, as, we're, as a group, you talk and someone says something, you're listening, and then you respond to that, and it just gets this conversation going. It's no different with the Lord in a, in a prayer meeting. We're just inviting him in. And so in a prayer meeting, it's very practical. We're going to listen to what everyone's saying. You remember the double A, double B, double C, D? Double A is what? All right, we got someone here. Agree attentively. In other words, when we're praying in a group, we listen to what's being said and allow our thoughts, just like you would in any normal conversation. I'm not thinking about what I want to say. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm going to let this conversation develop. And it's fantastic. Any depth of conversation means there's two people that are good listeners. And so we listen. 
Agree attentively. Double B is? Believe boldly. So when we pray in conversation with God, we can believe what we're praying. We can believe God. As best as we can, we're trying to pray according to his will, and God hears that. Double C is? Uh, uh, okay, you just failed the test. I'm sorry. You get it. Well, not yet, but double C is communicate clearly. And for us older folks, you got to just speak up. <laughs> and so if I can't hear you, I can't agree with you. So I think it's perfectly right in a conversation, in a prayer meeting, you say, what did well, you just say? Just like you would with someone else now. Okay, so double A, agree attentively. Double B, believe boldly. Double C, communicate clearly. And D is do it. Because the only way we learn to pray is by praying. They came to Jesus and said, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus said what? When you pray. When you pray. So it's entering into that place where we know it matters. We know it works. We know it makes a difference. We know it's a deciding factor. I'm hoping to just up for you as for me the importance, the power of prayer that's been given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And in his name, whatever we ask in his name, he will do it. That's what he told us. Now, as I was going through my readings this week in my devotional time, I came across in in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, this guy named Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was the most wicked king of Israel. He allowed nothing to stand in the way of license and open evil. And so, in the 23rd year of his reign, he was taken captive to Babylon. He was there probably about 12 years, and during that 12-year period that he was there, he turned to God in prayer. And it's powerful, and it gives me so much hope. That, so this is what happened in 2 Chronicles of Manasseh. Now, when he was in, his, in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This wicked king repented. Prayer is powerful. I thought of Jonah. Here's Jonah, this disobedient, unwilling, and angry prophet who in disobeying God, God through the whale and others was able to direct him to where he wanted him. And he said, here's his prayer. He said, I cry out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. This is Jonah now 2, verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And God heard his prayer. Prayer is powerful. I thought of Paul and Silas, beaten and chained. They're in that dark dungeon, if you will. It says in Acts 16, 24, having received such a charge... He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And the prison doors were open. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is so powerful when we're suffering, when it's difficult. I thought of Paul dealing with his demonic buffeting. He prayed, powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He's dealing with demonic things here. Concerning this thing, here it is, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he might, that it might depart from me. This messenger might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect 
in weakness. Therefore, notice, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in, listen, infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the power of prayer. That's where he heard those answers that strengthened him. And so Ephesians, Paul tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Principalities, powers. So he says, take on the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand evil day and having done all to what? Stand. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Stand. Put on the whole armor of God. It's prayer. Prayer is powerful. James said this, is anyone on you suffering? One thing, let him pray. Let him pray. Prayer not only is powerful, prayer is pure. I love this. Notice in Job chapter 16, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin, laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed with weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Verse 17, although no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. You see, intimacy with God comes from the depths of our own brokenness, weakness, and weeping alone in prayer. Motives are weighed and our hearts are changed alone in prayer. Prayer cleans up the messes and the yuck that accumulate continuously in our hearts. Prayer not only is powerful and pure, prayer is profitable. And don't you listen to any other voice that tells you differently. Look at Job again, chapter 21, verse 14. Yet the wicked say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Listen very carefully. Knowing and serving God depends on prayer. That's where we meet him. That's where we know him. That's where we're, just, we're sent out. Prayer is profitable for everything and anything. Can I hear an amen? Prayer is always a good investment of your time and energies. And finally, close. Prayer is what our Redeemer lives for. Prayer is what our Redeemer lives for. So Job goes from the depths of despair to the heights of faith and then back down to the depths of despair in this whole thing he's going through. And it's in prayer that this is all happening as he's crying. 85% of what Job says is directed toward God. This is prayer all the way through. It's a prayer book. So Job 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. He, he's saying, I want to I present my case to God. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Amen. This is prayer. I know that my Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer came in flesh and blood. And while he was on the earth, he prayed alone regularly. It was a part of what he did. His disciples came to him and said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? As he was praying, they come. And I believe they're watching him praying. And when, when Jesus was done, he opens his eyes and says, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw the intimacy there. They saw what was happening. 
in the life of Jesus. And the only time there, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray. And I say that's a, that's a continual thing. Lord, teach me to pray. Jesus faced the cross alone in prayer. In prayer. Hebrews tells us that with vehement cries and tears, he cried out to God in that garden. It was so intense, Luke tells us, that his sweat became like drops of blood, breaking the capillaries. So intense was his prayer time. Working through this, battling against the force of evil. Not my will, but your will be done. And he won the battle where? In prayer. He said to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And as Jesus is praying, the stones throw away. There they are. And he's saying, watch with me, watch with me. And he comes to them and they're sleeping. He prayed alone. He faced the cross alone in prayer and there won that victory. He rose again and the Bible tells he always lives to make intercession for us. What is our Redeemer doing right now? He is interceding for us before the throne of grace, at the throne of grace. How can we lose? I know that my Redeemer lives and he ever lives to make intercession for me, Hebrews. And then I'm reminded in closing, of Romans, where Paul writes this, and we must never forget this. He sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus did, and we read this. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You ever groan? You ever, like, Listen. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for us according to the will of God. Our groanings that we don't understand, our groanings of our hearts, the Holy Spirit is interceding right there for us. It's fantastic. I say, how can we lose? Jesus is interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. We groan. We don't know what to pray as well, but the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and prays. Prayer is powerful, pure, profitable, and our Redeemer lives to pray. And so he says, intercession for us according to the will of God. Now, here's a scripture you may not know, a verse you might not think about. It follows right after prayer. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know that verse very well. What is it on the tail? It follows the intercession of the Holy Spirit in the groanings that were, and we know all things work together for good. Where do you find that peace? He shall keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee in prayer. Prayer is what our Redeemer lives for. He sent the Holy Spirit for us. And we might know prayer. And so I hope, and I, I want to close First of all, by giving a Jesus call to anyone here who has not yet entered into that relationship with God through him. But then I want to take a moment and just re-up for each one of us in this area of prayer for, for all of us. This is our year of prayer. It's, it's a, again, such an important area. So would you bow your heads, please, your, close your eyes, pray right now. Because what I want to do first is just ask if there's anyone here that has not yet come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through the prayer of repentance from sin and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That you know you're not right with God this morning. You've got a lot of guilt, fear, emptiness. There's something missing. You don't know quite what it is, but you, you, you've had this sort of the hand of God 
on your life. And, 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 and sometimes that can feel a little heavy. You just can't escape because God loves you so much. He's going to continue to convict you of sin and righteousness. He's going to continue to bear, in, bear down on you because he loves you. He wants you to experience the forgiveness that comes through faith. He wants you to experience the freedom that comes through repentance and to know Jesus Christ. And as God, Jesus said, to know eternal life. So there's three things I'm going to ask you to do very simple this morning. First of all, to raise up your hand and say, I want to, I want to say yes to Jesus this morning. And that's just so we can acknowledge, I can acknowledge you. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And by doing that, you're being obedient to what you know the gospel says, which is clear. You're going to be obedient to that. And when you stand in obedience, what happens, and that's why Jesus said it's important that you confess me before men, that when you do that, that's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and all of the excuses, all of the fears, all of the reasons you've been battling with will be washed away because now you've been obedient. So that's why it's important to stand up. Third, I'm going to ask you to just walk up to one of the tables on either side and there there's people that will pray with you to bring your life and surrender it to God once and for all today. And so the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. So if that's you, just as we're praying, brothers and sisters, we're it's a battle. If that's you, would you just raise up your hand and say, yes, I want to say to G- yes to Jesus today. And I want to acknowledge that, so keep that up. I don't want to miss that. God won't miss it. I get that. But we want to be a part of what God's doing in your life, the most important decision you'll ever make. So if that's you, just as we're praying, just raise up your hand. Say, yeah, that's me. We pray. we continue to pray, Lord, that you would bring many to salvation, right in this room, maybe in the lobby. So as we're just praying now, just before this final song, if your prayer life, and it's conversation with God, I understand that, but really you know there's just a need you have say once again in your heart, I'm going to spend time with God consciously speaking to Him, praying to Him and you just want God to acknowledge that prayer to Him Lord, would you teach me to pray would you just slip up your hand before the Lord, not me, I'm I'm praying along with you, just slip up your hand and say, God that's me I remember a long time ago several years, where the Lord convicted me as being a prayerless pastor and there's always that need because it's a battle. Say, Lord, would you teach me to pray? And then in that prayer, in that request, prayer always wants to, God always wants to take us deeper in prayer, in intimacy with Him. And so, Lord, would you teach me to pray? And then, secondly, you can put down your hand. Secondly, that you need to really repent of some sin in your life as a believer there's been things that you've been doing maybe some of it habitually maybe some of it is, is really tearing, up, tearing you up it's, people don't know but God knows and you know but whether it be something that's a small thing that you feel like the Lord's calling you to repent of or maybe it's some major area would you just slip up here and say God would you forgive me would you cleanse me from all unrighteousness see prayer is so powerful It's so purifying, so profitable. 
And so just if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our So would you just look, say, Lord, that's me. Here's the area in your heart before the Lord. And you're repenting. Say, Lord, forgive me. I, I'm, I'm sorry for that. You can put your hand down. A third area. There are people in your life that need prayer. That's all. That's all. We should, would you stand together? There are people in all of our lives. Would you just stand as we go into this final song? And Lord, we're standing before you for these other people in our lives that we are, we are praying for, some of us agonizing over, that need, either they need you or they need a strengthening. They need hope. They need some things restored to their, in their lives. Broken relationships. Lord, we're praying for them as we, as we come before you in worship. And we are asking in Jesus' name, however that might be for us, that we can be a part of comforting them and helping them and listening to them. And if that's not possible, Lord, we're praying for them. That's what we're doing. So let's take this last song and then we'll...